still a little squeaky, I think. Yeah. Uh, we are in the last chapter of Acts after quite some time. We have probably this, including this one, three more to go. Um, Acts 28, 1 through 15 today. Let's pray. Our Father, how good you are. You reign as our King, as the King over creation, and you are our God. And there can be no other. And how blessed we are to sing your praises this morning and to come into your presence, to hear your word. And we're privileged to be numbered among your people and to enjoy one another and to encourage and to be encouraged. Now, Father, I ask that you would fill us with the joy and peace of knowing that you are our God and we are your people. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you're able, Acts 28, 1 through 15. Remember, this is after the shipwreck of Paul and his companions on Malta. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or to suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius laid sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when he had taken pl- when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on, on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island in a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Amen. This is God's word. Chapter 28, after being shipwrecked on Malta, opens with an emphasis on God. 
God as provider and protector. He says, after we were brought safely through. In the passive, God brought them safely through. Which sets the tone for this story because, as we see in this passage, idolatry is pervasive. From the native islanders to the the Alexandrian ship, uh, natural man sees the work of God and in the darkness of our hearts we attribute his work of creation to a creation rather than the creator. But Luke wants us to trust in God, to lean on God and to believe God. So if Acts 28 puts these truths on display for us in narrative form, I think uh, Psalm 16 is really a poetic, emotional, and experiential expression of the same truths. And specifically, and if you want to turn there, I'll be kind of referencing it a few times today. Psalm 16, you can keep your finger there. Uh, 1 through 6 is what I'm going to read. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. We see this kind of praise and thanksgiving that I believe was also evoked in Paul and one that I hope is evoked in us this morning as we see God's work of uh, his work on display and in contrast to the idolatry of natural born man. So the first thing I want us to see about God in this passage that causes us to turn to Him for refuge, as it says in Psalm 16, rather than running after other gods, is simply that God is just, or God is truly just. And I say truly just because we have a sense of justice in ourselves, even as natural born man, but it's skewed, it's slanted, and it's incomplete at best. Only God is truly, comprehensively just. Even after surviving the sea, Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, his companions, the the 276 sailors, still face a potentially life-threatening situation. Um, It's getting to be winter time, which theirs probably means it's 50 or 60 degrees. The wind's blowing, it's raining. That's pretty cold. Luke says that the natives started a fire for them, or perhaps multiple. If there was 276 men crawling up on the beach, they were taking care of them. And literally, Luke uses the word for natives here is uh, uh, barbaroi, or barbarians, which to Greek speakers, there's Greek speakers and there's barbarians, everybody else. These are the natives, and apparently these people would have been of Phoenician descent, and they probably would have spoke Punic, not Greek. But they are far from 
barbaric. They take care of Paul. They take care of the shipwrecked sailors. He says, showing unusual kindness, probably because surviving a shipwreck like this shows them something of divine favor, that all 276 people landed that day. And it shows innocence and divine care. But the next event here calls that that perception into question for them, for the natives. As he collects sticks for the fire, he accidentally collects a snake as well, perhaps lethargic from the cold. As he puts it on the fire, the snake springs into action and, and takes hold of Paul on the arm. And, of course, Paul um, seemingly, casually, shakes the snake from his hand back into the fire and the, the natives are just waiting to see what will happen. Is he going to swell up? Is he going to just drop down dead? By this point, it seems Paul has been through so much that, that it doesn't seem that in, in this instant, incident or, or the shipwreck, he gets overly worked up. It's not to say he wasn't frightened, but he operates not based on his own intuition or emotions, but on the concrete reality of God's promises, because he has been promised, you will go to Rome. He knows that much. Now, the way that the natives respond here is very interesting. And here we see the contrast between the justice of God and the justice conceived of by natural man. In verse 4, I'll, I'll read there. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when he had waited a long, they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. You notice in the ESV the word justice is capitalized. In Greek mythology, the goddess Dike was the daughter of Zeus. Um, and in, Daryl Bach says that also Roman and Punic people had deified or per- personified justice as a god. So this is probably referring to, they're probably referring to a god or a goddess um, saying that she has kind of karmic justice has been issued. The goddess justice has done her work. The scales are rebalanced. And justice is served. And this kind of karmic justice is uh, common in the world today. Kind of what goes around comes around. They'll get what's coming to them. And even when we're skeptical about whether justice will be served for us, we're mad about it. Showing that justice is ingrained in us. It's built in within us which on the one hand is a reflection of the image of God in us. We have an intuitive sense that the scales of justice should be balanced. And this is universal. It's the natural expression of the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine. And we almost intuitively correlate catastrophe with divine judgment. 
However, the sinner, mired in idolatry, lacking special revelation, is blind to the intricate purposes of God in the world. So there's some truth in, in what the islanders see there happening, but their response misses a couple of important points. And Calvin emphasizes these points. And the first is that God does not always dispense equal punishment in the here and now. That's just the plain and obvious truth. We see it all around us. People who are wicked have relatively easy lives sometimes. People who are relatively righteous go through terrible things. Uh, This is the complaint of Jeremiah, the prophet in chapter 12. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Or the psalmist has the same complaint or observation in Psalm 73 and 37. Habakkuk likewise says to God, Why do you idly look at wrong? It's also the error of Job's friends. Uh, They assume there has to be a correlation between your suffering and some sin that you did. And in in chapters 21 and 22, uh, Zophar pitches this, this idea and Job responds. Zophar says essentially, evil men will receive great punishment and everything will go wrong for them. And in 21, Job responds essentially, nice theory, but get your head out of the theoretical clouds and look around. Evil men, they live long lives, their milk pails are full. It's simply not true that the wicked all enter into destruction immediately in this life. Jesus himself corrects this error in Luke 13, 1-5, where he says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So there are many reasons why a person might endure suffering in this life. Righteousness, perhaps, in the case of Job. Uh, Testing, as we learn from James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials of various kinds. Then he goes on to tell us that's, that's a sanctifying influence for us. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us it may be fatherly chastisement or, or, um, Second Corinthians, it may be display of God's power through weakness, as it was with the thorn in Paul's side. So God does not always dispense judgment or justice equally in the here and now. And the simple fact is we're all very grave sinners and we all deserve instant judgment and justice and wrath. And this is why a blind and unredeemed view of justice falls so far short because the cross of Christ has such a radical impact on how we view justice. So that's, that's the first misunderstanding of the islanders is that justice is always dispensed equally in the here and now. And second, and, and really the flip side of the coin, is that God will balance the scales. 
Justice is rarely according to our time scale, but God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Calvin puts it this way, he says, We wait for the end. We wait for the end. After all, how could justice be served fully in the here and now when the sins that are committed are not just against fellow man, but against an infinite and holy God? In other words, if full justice was to be leveled on Paul, apart from the cross of Christ, death by snake bite would not be sufficient. So we wait for the end. So that's the first thing we hear is that God, and God alone, is truly just. Second thing that we see about God in this passage that causes us to turn to Him for refuge rather than running after other gods is that God is truly God. God is truly God. Almost, almost humorously, though tragically, these islanders shift from one extreme to the other. Paul is a murderer. Paul is God. Again, the the error of natural man mired in in sin and idolatry. And again, it displays the insufficiency of general revelation. Creation reveals God's power and divine nature. But the wild and crazy things we come up with by trying to interpret just the signs of nature without special revelation, without the Bible, without Christ, is scary. We fall so far short on our own efforts in trying to to read the gut pile. This very event is meant to put on display the glory of God and to confirm Paul as his apostle, but it's perverted by these lost men and the object of their worship has become the creature rather than the creator. The same thing, of course, happened to Paul and to Barnabas in chapter 14 of Acts at Lystra. And when that happened, Paul cried out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now, if we know Paul at all by the end of 27 chapters at this point, we know he probably said something very similar in this instance. But it's interesting, and I think it's significant, that Luke doesn't record such a speech. It seems for Luke in the narrative, the contrast itself is, is enough to put on display the difference between trusting in the one true God, the living God on the one hand, and the sad state of idolatrous affairs of natural man on the other. It's like the psalmist said in, in Psalm 16 verse 4, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Rather, as the psalmist says, I will take refuge in God, who is who's truly God. So in light of the insufficiency of nature to lead us to a saving relationship and knowledge of God, 
we should be so grateful that He has spoken to us through His prophets, through His apostles, and of course, above all, through the incarnate Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've seen that God is truly just and that He is truly God. And the third thing that we see in this passage about God that causes us to turn to Him for refuge rather than running after other gods is that God is our provider and preserver. Our provider and preserver. We see God's preservation and provision in three ways here. Um, first, by His granting favor for Paul with the Maltans, the residents of Malta, and second, by bringing him safely to Rome, as he had promised so many times, and third, through the love of his people. So first, he he obtains favor, Paul does, with the the Maltan people. In verse 7, Paul and his companions are welcomed into the hospitality of the ruler of Malta, named Publius. And Paul gets the opportunity then to heal his father from fever and dysentery. And word spreads and people come from all over the island to receive healing. And the Lord grants mercy to them and they're healed through Paul. And as he uh, comes into Publius's father's house, Paul prays to God, Luke says, showing that the power to heal is not in Paul himself, but in the God to whom he prays. And here we see again Christ's glory and His authority on display in this healing and really in the broader story in that that Christ rules over the sea and over the fate of men and He enables His servant with the snake to, as the psalmist says, to tread on the adder. And He alone, Christ alone, has the power over disease and death. However, I think we should take note again that it's somewhat unusual that for this three-month span, Luke doesn't record any sermons or conversions as we've become accustomed to through Acts, even though this whole island is coming to him for healing. And again, I have no doubt that the gospel went out in power that day and that the, the days and weeks following, but it seems to me here the emphasis of Luke is that God is caring for and providing for his Apostle Paul. And he continues to lead him to Rome as he has promised. Would Paul have been brought to Publius at all had it not been for surviving the snakebite and obtaining favor and esteem with the natives? And we read in verse 10, the outcome of Paul's healings on the island that the Lord granted them to, to curry favor for Paul with the locals in verse 10 they also honored us greatly and when we were about to set sail they put on board whatever we needed God was taking care of Paul the Lord preserved Paul and it was not ultimately Paul or his abilities or his wisdom or his charisma it was not of course the the blind dead false idols of Malta but it was God God enabled Paul to gain favor with the people so that they cared for him, that they took care of his needs. We might say, well, I I wish I had the power to heal so I could get 
favor like that. So that I could be cared for by God. But that's really missing the point. I mean, really, we should be careful what we wish for if we wish for that. If we at least we find ourselves stranded, shipwrecked, without any material means to sustain ourselves, destitute, and trying to find out how we're going to get off this island. I think I am more content with the more boring form of, of, of provision and preservation. In seeing how God cares for His Apostle, I am more certain that whatever comes, He will preserve and care for me as well. We see the second form of preservation in Paul's safe travels to Rome. In verse 11, at the end of three months, uh, the winter is finally coming to an end. The sea is becoming passable from Malta to Sicily. Um, And they board an Alexandrian ship heading for Rome. And it says they come to Syracuse, which is on the western edge, eastern edge of Sicily. And it's a major uh, a port city there, renowned for its beauty. From there they make their way to Regium, which is on the tip of the boot of Italy. And from there they proceed through uh, the Straits of Messina, which is the two wild, uh, mile-wide straits between Sicily and the, the tip of the boot of Italy. And they go on until they arrive at Puteoli, uh, which is about a, a 200-mile sail from Regium to Puteoli, uh, which is kind of on the shin of the boot where modern-day Naples is. Um, and this was the, the most common port to unload cargo for Rome, which is interesting because it's about 130 miles southeast of Rome. It's a good distance from Rome. So they would have traveled that distance by foot from Puteoli to Rome. But they, Luke records that they, they get to Rome, which after all that Paul has been through, that they got to Rome is extraordinary. That God kept his promise, bringing Paul to Rome, admittedly through a, a very unorthodox series of events, but he bought, brought Paul to Rome, just as he had said. And if we back up to verse 11... The irony of the figurehead on the Alexandrian ship serves, again, to, to highlight further God's preserving power as opposed to that of, of idols. It's just such an ironic figurehead in light of all that's happened. The, the figurehead is carved images on the, the bow of the ship. Um, and it says in, that, that they were um, the twin gods, which means Castor and Pollux was the name of these twin gods. Um, and in Greek and Roman mythology, these, these gods were um, twin brothers and patron deities of the sea, of sailors. Now it's complicated, as the family structures of Greek and Roman gods is always complicated. Uh, but Castor and Pollux are the sons of Leda, and Castor is the mortal son of her husband, um, uh, Tinadarus, who is the king of Sparta. And Pollux is the immortal son of Zeus. Again, it's complicated. Twins, two different fathers. Uh, 
But in the mythology, Pollux, because he's immortal, wants Castor to become immortal. So Zeus immortalizes them as the constellation Gemini. Apparently, in the mythology, Poseidon gives them the power over the wind and the waves, and he's made them the protector of sailors. Now, how, how ironic, after Acts 27, that they, they go through this whole ordeal and they board the ship with, with idols that are meant to protect sailors, that are the patron deities of the sea. I'm sure the Alexandrian sailors, during the midst of the tempest, cried out to Castor and Pollux in the storm. And when they got to Malta, who was it that brought them to Malta? It was Paul's God, not Castor and Pollux. So again, it's extraordinary, and just the beautiful irony of them boarding this this idolatrous ship and it taking them safely to Rome, that God is providing for Paul. The third form of provision is God's people. God provides for Paul through his people. In verses 14 and 15, two encouraging encounters happen First, at Puteoli, the brothers invite Paul and his companions to stay there, to lodge with them for seven days before they head to Rome. Um, It's a logical place for a Christian community to spring up. A major port city is going to be kind of an eclectic place, and it's going to be the first place that receives evangelists from any religion, but including Christianity. So there's a Christian community there, and they, they take care of Paul and his companions. And the second event is on the road to Rome, and scholars go back and forth whether people came from the outskirts to Rome, but I think the opposite is that they came and greeted him on his way to Rome. These two locations, probably cities or towns that grew up around a forum and a tavern, um, Daryl Box says that the form of Appius on the Appian Way, which is the road to Rome, was about 43 miles south of Rome, and the Three Taverns was 21 miles south of Rome. So over the course of a week's stay, they get word that Paul's here. Remember, Paul's letter to the Romans had been written already a couple years before. Paul's here. He's on his way from Puteoli. Let's go greet him. Let's go see him. And they come all the way down to the the Forum of Appius and to the three taverns. Luke says, On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Paul thanked God and took courage. Calvin says, For though he were endued with invincible strength, so that he did not depend on man's help, yet God who useth to strengthen his by means of men, did minister to him new strength by this means. In other words, Paul had God himself. He didn't need men, but God works through means. He works through the encouragement of men. And specifically, these brothers in the Lord to strengthen and encourage. Which I think brings us back around to, to Psalm 16. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 2. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. No good apart from you. And yet, he continues in the next verse 
to proclaim a good. That he delights in men. In verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Because for the psalmist, to enjoy communion with the saints of God is to enjoy the goodness of God. Remember, God's covenant promise is twofold. I will be your God and you will be my people. So to be in fellowship with the covenant God is to be in covenant fellowship with God's covenant people as well. As the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. So God preserved His Apostle through the kindness and favor of the Maltans and as through the, a safe delivery to Rome and through the love of the brethren. And I hope this passage of Scripture causes us to be strengthened and encouraged with the Apostle because we are preserved by the same God of grace. And in our natural-born state, we are like the, the, the natives of Malta or the Alexandrian sailors, blind to the one true God. Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So Christ, He is the ultimate preservation and refuge. He is the propitiation of God's just wrath. And through Him we enjoy life-giving communion with Him and with His saints. So surely our own hearts can join in the thanksgiving and courage of the Apostle Paul and we can praise the Lord with the psalmist who said, Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot and the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay, let's stand and and sing a hymn of response. Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders, number 319.